Hey, welcome to the Scrum GBH's Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Hey, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation I had with the writer Alexander Hamon, who grew up in Sarajevo in what used to be Yugoslavia, about some disturbing parallels he sees between that country just prior to its breakup in the early 1990s and the United States right now. But first, Peter Kadzis, you have some thoughts on the newly launched mayoral candidacy of Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell, who officially kicked off her campaign last week. My name is Andrea Campbell, and I deeply love this city. I'm running for mayor because every neighborhood deserves real change and a real chance. Who's with me? Uh, Adam, I'm going to have to repeat something I said last week to get into my main point. And that's that as exciting as it is for political junkies like us that there's going to be a a high-profile contested mayoral race, it's hard to intelligently speculate until we know what happens to Joe Biden. If Will Biden be elected president? If he is, will Mayor Walsh follow him to Washington or take a position somewhere else? The reason that's so important is because if Walsh were to leave in the middle of his term, uh, Kim Janey, the city council president, would become acting mayor. And that could change the whole equation. You know, would Janey herself feel compelled to run for mayor? Um, Even if she didn't, might her supporters pressure her to? Now, that's important because even before we know what Walsh is going to do, the the assumption among what I'll loosely call, I'm sorry, the reason Walsh is so important is because the, the, the general progressive assumption for someone other than Walsh is the feeling that it's time Boston had a mayor of color, a person of color. Now that raises a delicate issue, and that's if there were two African-American candidates, would black voters consider an Asian to be a person of color? Now, in the polite, progressive discourse, there's no question that Michelle Wu would be. but. I have to say that having been a Boston public school parent and witnessed, you know, some very candid and well-meaning discussions at the school level, um, there's some pushback that some people in the black community say, "Hey, look, um, Asian parents have more in common with Boston uh, with uh, Asian parents have more in common with white parents than they do with black parents." Now. I want to be very, very careful here, but there is a possibility that that sort of thinking could emerge, whether it's spoken or not. And it it could become an important determinant if Walsh is not running. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And it's funny, we talk about these issues, um, you know, you're someone who, who taught me most of what I know about Boston politics. You grew up in the city. I don't live in the city, but I'm fascinated by it. But here we are. We're, we're two white men talking about identity politics and how they're going to play out. And when you mentioned being very careful, I was reminded of 
when I was typing the words after Michelle Wu kicked off, floating five, you know, upsides to her candidacy or five positives about her candidacy and five downsides or five reasons to be skeptical. And when I got into the one that you just mentioned, how does identity play out, racial identity, ethnic identity? I just remember as I typed the words, being so concerned that I not use inappropriate wording. And yet it does seem like it's this crucial issue that everyone covering this race is going to have to reckon with. Yeah, that that's that's a, a hint of something that might be to come. Now, if the mayor runs, we know from the recent um, GBH News Mass Inc. poll that um, he enjoys, you know, I would say relatively robust support from Boston's black community and from white residents. Now, campaigns, of course, are about changing people's minds, but... Um, it could be complicated, and that, to me, makes it interesting. But I will say this, um, Campbell's announced at a good time for herself. Clearly, she has to get in the race because Michelle Wu was in the race. But the mayor's task force on Boston police reform, you know, he has come to grips fairly seriously with one of her key issues the need for um, a civilian review board. So I would say she's, you know, announcing with, you know, the wind at her back, if you will. I'm glad you brought up her work on issues involving police oversight and police reform, because when I think of Michelle Wu's signature issues, and I know she's had a bunch, but I think of the way she staked out this regional leadership role on the T in a way that I'm not used to seeing local elected officials do. And I think of her work on short-term rentals uh, to rein in Airbnb and Airbnb going after her in a way that came back to haunt them and boost her profile. But for Campbell, it seems like policing is the sweet spot when it comes to policy and politics, right? Well, she certainly made policing her sweet spot, and that's to her credit. Would it help her, and maybe I'm overthinking this, but uh, you mentioned the city moving along uh, coming around in one key area to where Campbell wants the city to go. Does that make her look especially good on this issue moving forward, given that at the state level, the momentum for meaningful police reform seems to me, from the outside at least, to have entirely dissipated? Um, it certainly makes her look good at the moment. I mean, we'll have to see what happens at the state house. But um, look, I've never had a good feeling about police reform in general. The jury's still out as far as Boston's concerned, but it's at least heading in the right direction. Beacon Hill, it's very hard to say. Um, you know, both the speaker and the Senate president had promised action by now. I mean, the legislature is doing its um, I'm asleep in the closet routine. Um, <laughs> one reason they're sleeping in the closet is they want to get the November 3rd election over. Even though there are very, even though statistically speaking, there are very few reps or senators in truly competitive races, they don't want the police unions breathing down their neck. Now, the Senate has um, uh, staked out a much more aggressive position in wanting to be. Um, very strict in limiting 
very strict in limiting uh, police protection from civilian suits. The House less so. That's a key issue. And behind the scenes, the the three major police unions are, you know, really rattling their sabers. Now, you won't get a hint of that coming from Beacon Hill because the conference committee, which is made up of members of the state senate and the House of Representatives, acts like they're on a jury. Um, you know, there's a cone of silence around it and no one will break it. Now listen, realistically, I can understand that. But um, I, I have uh, a, a rather perverse observation here. The fact that Massachusetts progressives did everything they could to remove the, the, the two minority members of DeLeo's leadership team cannot be serving them well in, um, in these negotiations. That's a fascinating point. I had totally forgotten about that. Yeah. I mean, the progressive stripped leadership of minority representation. Um, Ann Russell Holmes, who's a very eloquent spokesman um, for the issue of statewide police reform, is, um, is high on the speaker's uh, bad guy list. Yeah. Because Russell Holmes has been one of the few people on Beacon Hill who's been willing to criticize the speaker. Um, uh, these are just some of the complexities taking place on Beacon Hill that might help listeners understand why in Blaze's name nothing is happening. All right. Peter Kadzis, thank you as always for the insights and good to see and talk with you. I'm riveted to hear what your ex-Yugoslavian expert has to say. It may be a little bit depressing, but it, he, no. he was pretty good. On that note, on to my conversation with Alexander Hamon, who warned back in May in a piece for The Intercept that to his eye, the United States in 2020 looks disturbingly like his native Yugoslavia did in the late 1980s and early 1990s, right before that country was torn apart in a brutal conflict that killed an estimated 140,000 people. It's fair to say that the passage of time has not alleviated his concerns. Hemon, as some of our listeners will know, is a prolific author whose works include The Lazarus Project, a terrific novel that was a National Book Award finalist in 2008. He's also a past recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship and currently a professor at Princeton University. For the record, Hemon acknowledges that the parallels between Yugoslavia then and the U.S. now aren't exact. For example, Yugoslavia was a one-party socialist state led by one man, Tito, for four decades. And Tito's death helped unleash the forces that went on to tear the country apart. Also, Slobodan Milosevic, the Serbian leader who drove Yugoslavia's dissolution, came up through the political establishment, not outside it. And finally, in contrast with the 50 states that make up the U.S., Yugoslavia was a federation of six republics, which were divided largely but not entirely on ethnic lines. Now, on to the similarities that Alexander Hamon sees. I have been interested in trying to find a way to talk with you ever since I read that piece that you wrote for The Intercept back in May. Trump's nationalism advances on a predictable trajectory to violence. His supporters will kill when they're told to. 
What was the immediate catalyst for that piece? I think the immediate prompt was um, the militias at the Michigan State House. They showed up with guns and, you know, were standing there showing some might. And there was another incident somewhere a couple of days before that, they showed up somewhere, the white militias. And so there was a pattern was emerging. They somehow saw themselves as entitled to protecting whatever they thought uh, this country or this nation is and was. There were a few commonalities that you identified in the piece as striking. For example, Milosevic uh, saying essentially, don't trust these federal structures. They have kept you from being who you can be, being your best selves, being as great as you can be. Um, you also talked about in the piece the growing faith in and maybe excitement about the cathartic effects of violence. Well, what happened is that um, on the one hand, the rise of nationalism that saw the state or the residues of the Yugoslav state and the arrangement, including republics, as the enemy, they set out to uh, undermine it and destroy it in various ways, right? And they were that uh, both by way of protesting and then um, taking over various points within that state, points of power. Milosevic came from the Communist Party. He was part of the uh, establishment, as it were. He was part of the system, right? He went through all the ranks, rose in due time, and then at some point realized that the institutions of the, of the party and the state, which were really the same, could be taken over. And then he went through a series of purges to um, get rid of people who opposed him and to install all of those loyal to him, and that included police and then also political institutions. And the crucial um, entity, of course, was the army, right? And once he took the control of the army, that was the end of Yugoslavia, beginning of the war. For all that to happen, particularly in Serbia, there had to be a pressure from the outside, as it were, upon the institutions of the government and the state, right? And this in Serbia was known as the happening of the people, the Shavanya Naroda, where these vast demonstrations were organized and there was spontaneous outpouring of patriotism and love of Serbia and you know, calling the injustices that had lasted forever and, and so on, the whole litany, right? The sort of um, rallies, right? The most, most famously was the one in the Kosovo um, field, which is the site of an old battle. It's of a great symbolic value for Serbian nationalists. And in 89, Milosevic spoke before a million people and then promised changes that might require some, you know, armed conflict. And so that was the cat catalyzing event, right? After that, it was all rushing to toward the war. The, the important aspect, the parallel is this, the happening of the people, seemingly spontaneous. It was highly coordinated. It was a propagandistic operation, but also a recruitment operation. And another parallel is that the how would I put it, um, scattered violence, right? Vast number of incidents, which were both a consequence of kind of the tension and conflict, but also coordinated because one of the ways to destroy the state is to, and the uh, functioning of the government is to create chaos, right? And this is, this is I think, where we at in the United States. This is where COVID comes in very handy for Trump and Republicans, right? That, to destroy the state that is oppressing us, whoever we may be, right? Who has been unjust to us, the deep state, right? Um, you have to have on the one hand, the happening of the people, on the other hand, the uh, destabilizing 
event or series of events. And that violence comes in handy for that, but also COVID, which was sort of fell into their lap as the engine of, of that chaos. This is why I'm fully convinced that it is not just negligence, but it's sort of they recognize the utility of the chaos that COVID creates. It is a means of destroying the state and the deep state, of undermining the function of the government, of distracting local governments and and you know democratic governors and cities and so on. It's a means. It's it's effectively plays the role of a war. It was not willed. I don't believe in conspiracy, right? It's not that they spread the infection, but they don't. They really think this is a good thing. I think, tactically speaking, I think it's short-sighted because they're going to get sick too. But I think that's how they think, and this is the logic of war. Some of us will die, but for a good cause. And so that, I think this is where we are. So this. Um, fragmentation of violence, the dis disbursement of violence, which is everywhere. I remember clearly a moment in Sarajevo when I thought I could not get into shoving matches anymore because the other person is likely to have a gun. We were not an armed nation like the United States. But you rec I recognize, I was very young then, the tipping point, right? That there's a sort of, the frequency of violence has increased and the presence is everywhere and so now you can't get into shoving and yelling match, right? Which is how well in the United States, you don't. I mean, sometimes I yell at people in the other car, but you know, I always think, oh, well, that might, they might have a gun. So I step back. And so the presence of violence and the tension sort of it's a self-perpetuating mechanism, I think. And so then you have the guys in Michigan State House or in the streets of Louisville with guns and uniforms, they already assigned tasks to themselves and they're, they're gunning for it. My sense is that Milosevic's whole project was predicated on a really palpable sense of victimhood, that his people had been mistreated and disrespected time and time again, and that this had reached a point where it was just no longer acceptable. And he was gonna draw a line in the sand and say no more. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, but it's also true. Uh, I mean, it's the same thing, just said otherwise, that. You know, people think of nationalism as, as unique to every nation. That is, each na nation's nationalism is different from others. So Serbs, Americans, Croats, that's all different. Ukrainians, Russians. However, um, there are structural and there are historical differences and conditions and, you know, um, different histories and um, uh, state makeups and ethnic uh, racial makeups and so on. However, there are uh, shared symptoms, if you wish, or at least characteristics. I like to call them symptoms because I think of nationalism as a pathology. And one of the, of the regular, I mean, you would be hard pressed to find any kind of nationalist movement in which um, the ideas or the notion of victimhood, some kind of historical injustice um, was not a huge part of it. I mean, from you know, the Nazis, the, the Italians, the Ukrainians, Russians, Croats, Serbs, you just, wherever you look, and there were some, you know, injustice. I mean, there were people who were occupied and all this. But the, the, it was the way that victim, victimhood as a national characteristic operates is, um, is used, is that we could not live to our full potential because we were oppressed or sabotaged by those others, right? Whether the others were from the out, outside, uh, some foreign force, um, and this, this work in concert, or the inside, like, you know, the Jews, you know. They're sabotaging the greatness of our nation. And so for that to be rectified, um, aggressive acts have to be committed, both by legally, 
or genocidally, right, by way of war, because this cannot be resolved in a parliamentary democracy. This is always, always the case in nationalism. It cannot be resolved politically. It cannot be negotiated with other parties. You cannot talk about it in the parliament because they've been tricking us and lying to us and using various things for, you know, for as long as democracy has lasted, right? This is the, this is the why um, Hitler dismantled the Weimar Republic, why Milosevic was a dictator, and, you know, and the logic is, is always present. And so that um, rectifying that the injustices inflicted upon our nation can only be done by way of some kind of violence. It's state violence, and usually in concert, I and mean, it's, it's happening simultaneously, that is um, arresting, controlling, um, rounding up, killing people who are sabotaging our national project, while at the same time conducting wars on the outside, because those outside also working against, against us, right? And so one of the refrains you can always find in every in nationalist um, uh, project is this one. There's the outside enemy and there's the inside enemy. And we have to, and they often work together. And so this is where we are also in the United States. Um, I think Trump is different because he's such a um, fundamental coward and has no liking for the army or any, any of that. I think the, the piece missing, what is not similar to Formula Slava is that the army, the military as of now, is out of it all. Who knows what might happen in the second term. So when you wrote the piece back in May, what kind of response did you get from people you know? Did they think that you were making a strong case or did they say, oh, you know, I understand why you're worried, but this seems awfully inflammatory? Well, I mean, depends who was responding. People from former Slavian Europe, they, they were already seeing all that because it really is um, visible. Um, some people, and I mean, this has been the case. I, I, I always thought that Trump is a serious threat it went just after he nominated and then thereafter, and that after he was elected, that this is going to end really, really badly. But the response has been from the beginning of the, this Trump adventure is that somehow that magically the checks and balances will take care of, right? And to me, that, that in itself was a symptom of the disintegration of the way politics in this country operates, that of this belief in the magical properties of the system. It is just, it's a symptom of helplessness, but also of delusional belief in some kind of essentialist value of our nation, which sort of replicates the nationalist model in itself. That somehow we will win this over because we are great. And that's not how it works, I'm afraid. That's, you gotta do some work, if nothing else. You wrote, wrapping the piece up, after you talked about this fear that you have of a descent into violence here in the US, you went on to write, what is even more frightening is the hankering across the political range for a magical national correction, the indulging of a persistent fantasy that some essential American quality, decency, responsibility, checks and balances, et cetera, will, will finally kick in and halt the Trumpist madness, thus allowing the country to snap out of its nightmare and revert to its good old national essence. And then you go on, that was never going to happen. The ongoing conflict is not a glitch, but a process that cannot be stopped or resolved politically. I was feeling really depressed the first time I read your piece before I got to that point. And then to have you close that way, saying effectively, this is out of the realm of politics. There's pretty much nothing you can do. 
that left me even more dismayed. Uh, so, so why, for starters, do you view that as even more frightening than what you see as the slide toward violence? I think, I mean, to put it simply, and I don't think this is good. I just think that the logic of the whole process will take us there. Something will have to break to be fixed. It'll be well past, maybe probably by decades, if not a century or two, um, well past any kind of reforms. This is, I mean, the, the way this country operates, the way it's set up right now, it is not sustainable without some kind of radical change. Now, Republicans and Trump are on it. Trump is the radical change, right? I don't think he invented any of it. He just sort of fell into it. He auditioned for a role and was given a job, and they said, all right, let's do it. And so um, he is the tool of that radical change. His destruction and his you know, nihilism, his pathological narcissism is a tool. And so none, not, this is why whatever scandalous thing was uncovered about him, it was really not an issue. It's an issue only if they want him to be seen as a politician who's building a new order of some kind, right? But this Make America Great Again, is this, there's another uh, nationalist pathology. It's a little vague and just sort of part of this victimhood thing that we're no longer great. And so this destruction is, they're on it, right? And so everything's working in that um, to their advantage in that respect and COVID, including COVID, right? And so, whereas the other side, and I don't mean to, to, to side this, I'm on the other side too, I, I'm against all that. Um, think that somehow we could slow it down and then all these things would just kick in. And I mean, both common people got too terrified to imagine a horrible future, but also the Democratic Party and others. They think, well, we, this is strong. We just have to sort of slow it down and people will snap out of it because we are good old, decent Americans. We're really not naturally racist somehow. Just every once in a while, we turn racist in large numbers. And so they are not in revolutionary mode, right? They're not ready for the, what might happen after, uh, after it breaks. And so I do not know if it will break. What I'm saying is the logic is pushing toward it. The, the entire strategy and, and tactical approach of Republicans and Trump are pushing in that direction. There's no uh, way of compromise or reform anywhere in their path, right? And so, and particularly if Trump is elected again, because that's the mandate for total destruction. And so they are undoing, in, in other words, this is what a similar peril, right? Milosevic and even in Croatia, but Milosevic in particular, they use the system to rise to power and then destroy that system from the inside, right? They use the stuff that they, that was good, like the military and the police and all that, and then destroyed everything else, uh, including the, you know, state infrastructure, and they sold off various things and sort of infected everything with corruption. And so if Trump and Republicans are in power in the second term, they will finish the destruction because they are, I don't know what they're imagining, but they are um, about the next thing not the past thing. And so I hate to say this, and I don't want to, you know, dismay you further, but it will not be fixed. It has to be break for something else to emerge. And maybe a good thing will emerge from that. Right? Maybe a more just society, a greener society, because we are in dire straits with climate change. But no election will fix this anytime soon. So I just want to make sure that I understand you very explicitly on one point. When you say that what you've described cannot be stopped or resolved 
politically. How do you understand politically? Are you talking about, as you just said a moment ago, you know, through one election, for example, uh, would you imagine that there are, for example, legislative initiatives or big, bold societal reforms that could help fix the problem you're diagnosing that some people might think of as, as political? Or am I thinking too narrowly here? Well, I mean, people say that war is, you know, a continuation of politics by, by other means, the, the famous Clausewitz definition that was very dear to Marx. Um, so I mean, in a narrow sense that of using uh, um, the structures of American democracy and politics as such, right? And so everything's politics. People protesting on the street is politics, right? You and I talking right now is politics. But what I mean is that using the polit political mechanisms of American democracy as it has been the case, right? And so that all, I think the institutions, particularly the federal government are going to get even weaker and weaker, right? And this is one of the Trump operations has been a weakening of everything from federal agencies to, you know, uh, ignoring the Congress to uh, abusing executive orders, which was also done by Obama, by the way, and, and so on. And so, you know, what, including the Supreme Court um, situation right now, right? And so whoever is, if, if any of the Trump candidates, and I'm sure they will be, um, end up in Supreme Court, that's essentially weakening the institution because, because it becomes fully a partisan uh, institution, one of the three you know, branches of American government. So given that, it seems to me like your takeaway could lead people into despair on the one hand, some type of collective action on the other, it seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong here, like if, if someone were inclined, they could almost even read it as a reason to brace for violence themselves, a la those Michigan militiamen. I, I'm not a political analyst or a politician, I'm a writer. I, I sort of simple-mindedly think I should be telling the truth as much as I can, even if I write fiction. And so I'm sure some people will get despaired, but I, I think, I believe in struggle. To me, struggle trumps hope, no pun intended, right? So we are up for a very difficult task. This requires organizing, um, realizing that, you know, difficult things will happen. We should be ready for that individually and, and collectively. We should stop relying on things that simply because, well, it's not, they, were, they have been nice. Or so, so we were taught that they, they work like checks and balances. And so, start finding alternatives to, to those um, things. And if that means uh, going out on the streets, and this is the people are not out on the streets because of what I said, but because people are out on the streets because they know that the, um, they are not protected, not only protected, they hated by the government that is supposed to represent them, right? They're prosecuted and persecuted by the people uh, who are supposed to be taking care of them, right? So they're out on the street already. So they, they clearly do not have confidence in the political system. That has nothing to do with me. Right? I just talk. And so, or anyone who, who talks. And so that I, I guess part of my job is fi to find descriptions for the reality that is not uh, self-evident. And so, I mean, not just mine, but as, as a writer, that's what, what writers do. And so to me, that means that we need to get organized, right? And, and um, think of the ways to um, participate in the politics in the wider sense in different ways. And if that means going out on the street or striking and all that, that is the case. I cannot say it 
because I deplore it. But there will be people, there are people now who think we need to get ready for violence because there will be violence, right? And so I'm not a pacifist, but at the same time, I cannot be telling people you get ready for the shootout. I cannot send other children to war, other people's children to war. That's not where I come from, but there will be violence. And that I'm sorry if that dismays people. My last question for you, it seemed to me when I was rereading your piece today before we talked that to some extent, the national political conversation to the extent that there is one has caught up with you somewhat. And I'm thinking of that big piece by Barton Gelman that just ran in the Atlantic saying effectively, Trump will never concede if he loses and people need to be ready for scenarios that they never would have envisioned coming to pass in the very near future. Also, of course, uh, if the conversation has caught up to you, it's partly thanks to the president himself, who just this week refused to say, uh, yes, I, I guarantee a peaceful transfer of power if I lose. In fact, he reiterated his suggestion that he could not possibly lose an election unless it is fraudulent. Is there any satisfaction, or maybe that's the wrong word, is there any optimism for you to be found in the fact that this range of ideas that you were talking about months ago are now being discussed by more people? Well, I can't, I can't call it satisfaction. I think it's, it's good that people are um, looking at things with less delusional optimism and that, that, that would help um, us organize for resistance and you know the, the struggle that is ahead of us. Um, I'm not confident that it, it is not too late for all that, right? Because they're way ahead in many ways. And uh, I think the Democratic Party is, is has they've been they are behind it. Never mind what people think and ideas. They are way way behind, and uh, they're way behind. Um, seeing or need to see that what, what what might transpire, right? The Onion, <laughs> to quote the Onion, the Onion had this you know fun article that the Democrats um, Democrats commit to wearing all wearing the same um, color if Trump refuses to concede the power in protest. I really that's that's where we at. That's the Democratic Party today, right? They will put their foot down and wear I don't know blue together. I, and so they're way behind. And I, I, that to me is the most, um, they are presumably representing the opposition to Trump, but they are nowhere near covering the range of opposition, right? They would not be caught dead unless they're, of course, people of color um, with the protesters against police violence. They're staying away from it. And because they are this, 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 the Clintonian Democratic Party, they're still hunting or hoping for you know, this fantasy you know, um, center voter, right? With various codes, soccer moms, average Americans, they're all white middle class. They, 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 they're committed to that and that is catastrophic. They cannot choose a side. I mean, they choose a side and that they're not Trump, but they cannot see that we are up for a struggle. They think if you, you know, sort of out, we can just keep going the same way. It was so great back in the day. And so to me, that is the, that is the worst thing. I, they need to be shaken out of that complacency. There are some people there, they're young, but uh, the establishment of the Democratic Party, they, I guess the average age is 70, upwards of 75, and they are just, they're not all present in the reality of the rest of us. 
Alexander Hamon, thank you for taking the time to talk this through with me. Thank you. And that is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Alexander Hamon for talking with us. And as always, to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us while you're at it and talk back to us. You can get us by email at scrum at wgbh.org. And also find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. We'll talk to you again next week. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.